0: The hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping. Properties. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub, Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the
1: community. created by Cora C.
0: The hub is about impact. The, about the hub is for everyone.
2: What do you got? a large amount of participants um, so we can get underway. So welcome everyone to the School of English Staff Postgraduate Seminar Series in collaboration with Trinity Long Room Hub. I'm Claire Poynton-Smith, one of the conveners of the seminar series, along with Ola Donnelly and Geneva Biancini, and would like to welcome you all to this, the final talk in this year's series, which is a special collaboration with the Oscar Wilde Centre, who will be showcasing some poems and prose. In just a moment, I will hand over to MC Kevin Power and other members of the centre, who will be your guides through the wonderful world of creative writing this afternoon. Before we begin a bit of housekeeping, please use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen at any time to ask a question as they occur to you during the readings, and please let us know who it is for. The chat function is available for general comments. If you're tweeting, Please tag at TCD English, at Centre Oscar, at TLR Hub and at Seminars TCD 2021. Um, the um, tags for those should be in the chat for you now. So without further ado, I'd like to hand over to Kevin Power and the Oscar Wilde Centre.
1: Hello, everyone. Uh, you're very welcome to this uh, rather special Staff Postgraduate Seminar event. Um, My name is Kevin Power. I'm Assistant Professor of Literary Practice in the School of English. And I teach on the Creative Writing Master's in the Oscar Wilde Center. Um, So today, what we're gonna do is present work by four writers who are currently working in the Oscar Wilde Center for Irish Writing. We have three writers who are currently studying for the MPhil in Creative Writing, and one writer who is working towards a PhD in Literary Practice. So each of these writers is going to read their work. Um, I'm going to introduce them one by one as they appear, but first um, I'm going to introduce the director of the Oscar Wilde Center, Owen McNamee. Owen's going to say a few words about the center and the work it does in creative writing. And Owen, of course, is a distinguished novelist and screenwriter, the author of Resurrection Man, The Ultras, The Blue Tango, 1223, most recently, The Vogue, and many other extraordinary novels. Um, so Owen, you're going to uh, talk to us about the, the center. You, Kevin, um, you have to say those nice
3: things. <laughs> I have to, I'm, I, my job depends on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm Omae McNamee, and I'm the director of the Trinity Oscar Wilde Centre for, as Kevin says, the MPhil and increasingly for the PhD in literary practice. Um, just to give you a bit of background, uh, the Centre was founded in 1997 by um, Jerry Daw and Brent Kennelly, two uh, cheery and uh, very distinguished gentlemen. I don't know the sequence of events, but they became aware of uh, the fact that number twenty one West Row at the back of Trinity um, was vacant and was about to be subsumed into the College Stock and become another yet another science lab. Um, and uh, they pounced and, and remarkably got it and uh, started this visionary at the time course. Uh, number twenty one is, is uh, the birthplace of Oscar Wilde, which which is um, we're very proud of. I lived here for a year before moving up the, the street. The building itself is important to us. Um, it's more than a bit battered, but it is a proper writing space. And if, if you're here, you'll have the use of it at all times. Um, there's, a, there's a nice kind of contemplative feel to it, which we achieve by driving every other course out of it and keeping it to ourselves. Um, uh, I'm not gonna go into details of the Enfield, you can get all that stuff online, but um, just to say that there are 16 places and the entry is pretty competitive. Um, I think we had 160 odd applications last year, and 140 odd this year. Staff at the minute include Deirdre Madden, distinguished novelist, Kevin Power, distinguished novelist, Carl Gebler, who is a man of all trades, novelists included, um, the poet Harry Clifton, and our writer fellow Hilary Fannin. Um, We're very lucky that the Arts Council provides funding for a writer fellow every year, and um, we've had some great people uh, Keelan Hughes last year, Claire Keegan the year before, and uh, the fantastic Hilary this year. Um, I was going to say they're all professors, but um, to claim to be a professor of writing always seems to me a little bit declaring yourself an emperor of the wind or something like that, you know it's a, it, Writing is and should be an elusive practice and not to be codified. Um, you will meet rigorous standards here, but they are kindly applied. Our job here is to nurture. It's a difficult enough business without bringing any extra stress to it. Our students range from just out of undergraduate to those who have raised families. We're not posh, that aspect of Trinity faded away years ago. Um, well, Carl's a bit posh, but I can um, say actually, not here. <laughs> us, if you don't mind me saying, aren't quite there. Uh, students get college loans, work two jobs, whatever it takes to complete the year. Um, I'm always wondering about prize culture, but I'm a little compromised by the fact that, um, as my chosen point, out, I don't win any. Um, but um, we're very proud of our writers in the world. And I'd just like to point to the fact that if this year's uh, Five strong shortlists for the Kerry Group Irish Fiction Prize. Uh, three of them ha- are, are have been teachers or students of the Oscar Wilde Centre: Claire Keegan, Lisa Harding, and the man in front of you, Kevin Parr. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Owen. You
1: don't you don't have to say nice things about me, so it's nice when you do. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so without further ado um we're going to hear from four of our current oscar wild center writers so we're going to begin with kira mitchell kira is from Forfar in scotland she graduated from the university of aberdeen in 2021 with an honors degree in english with music studies she writes contemporary fiction and is currently working on a novel set in her hometown of Forfar. Uh, the structure and fiction and poetry module on the MPhil creative writing course prompted her she says to solidify a plot for this novel, and she has since been workshopping chapters from it in the class. So I'm not sure what Kira's going to read for us, hopefully something from the novel. Um, I look forward to hearing it. Kira, you're very welcome.
4: Um, hello, and thank you for the introduction. Um, yeah, I'm going to read an extract from chapter three of the novel that I'm working on just now, which, as Kevin said, is set in my hometown of Forfar. Um, This section takes place when the narrator, Freya, who is 17, has just finished her final English exam at school. After the exam, the four of us decided to walk to Loch. I was reluctant to leave when we still had an afternoon of classes, but it was Audrey who suggested that we go. She was never one to break the rules, so we went. We got so lucky with that question coming up. Everyone picked number six. I was not surprised that the exam debrief had begun. It needed to happen. We're all walking in silence thinking about it. I rolled my eyes though when I knew that no one would see me do it. Kerr started the conversation. He knew that I hated talking about exams after sitting them even more than I hated talking about them before. I liked to keep the exams a little secret to myself or even from myself so that the pressure surrounding the exam did not feel real. I could not feel overwhelmed by something which was not real. Question six fits so well with the practice essay I did. I actually started to second guess it. Like I'd imagined the words of the question, they were so perfect, Lorna said. Audrey, I saw you were done when I was leaving. Why did you stay in there? I could have done with the company. I'd been walking between Karen and Audrey, but now he stepped in front of me so that he could talk to her about how early they'd finished writing and about how the exam did not need to be so long. And he suggested that maybe they'd made it easier because students had complained about last year's paper. I was moved to walking behind the group. My jaw felt stiff and clicked every time I moved it. I had a habit of clenching it whenever I was even slightly stressed. As soon as I saw that question, I went into a trance and just kept writing and writing until I was done. I'm worried I forgot something, Audrey said. Don't stress, you've got any." Don't say that out loud, you'll jinx it. I looked at Audrey now because Cara was looking at her. She was pale and dishevelled, her school tie hung loose from her neck and her hair stuck up in tufts where she'd been nervously running her hands through it. Was she really that worried she'd failed? I'd never seen her I'd never seen her score below 70% before. What did she have to worry about? Even if she had not come to the exam, she was still guaranteed her place at university, her one-way train ticket south of Forford. The lock was quiet as it was the middle of a school day. Only elderly dog walkers and a couple of people out jogging occasionally passed by as we sat on one section of the lock's edge, which almost resembled a beach. We spread out on the slightly damp grass a couple of metres in front of the rim of sand on the edge of the loch. The sand was much darker and grainier than sand at the seaside would be, but we were a 30-minute car journey to the nearest real beach, and only Audrey was taking driving lessons. The water sat very still, almost stagnant. A pale yellow foam separated the water from the land. You're very quiet. How do you think you did? Kerr asked. Fred doesn't like to talk about exams, Audrey replied, before I could begin to speak. Kerr moved as if he were about to engage in yet another conversation with Audrey, but I interrupted. I wrote about Slough, Lorna started laughing. You what? Audrey asked as if I had offended her. I didn't like the prose fiction question, so I wrote about Slough. We learned the poem back in, Lorna interrupted with a dramatic recitation of the poem. Come friendly bombs and fall on Slough. It isn't fit for humans now. There isn't grass to graze a cow, swarm over a death. That's the one, I said, and I could not tell whether she was laughing at me or at her own comic retelling of the poem. I joined in anyway. I'm sure it's okay, Kerr said reassuringly, but with his eyebrows furrowed and his mouth frowning, I didn't say it wasn't. What other poems did you write about, though? We didn't learn any others in class. I only wrote about Slough. The exam paper said you needed three. All the past papers have said it too. Yeah, he's right, Audrey added, it's definitely three. Oh... I didn't realise. Audrey became visibly more relaxed as herself and Kerr discussed the ramifications of my mistake. She unhunched her shoulders so that they were no longer so close to her knees. She lay back in the grass. She smiled. In a moment of anger, I thought, how lucky she must feel to have a friend as stupid as me. It must make her feel so much better about herself. Kerr pulled me in so that I was lying on his arm, staring up towards the sky as he and Audrey t- continued to talk over me. I watched the way his chin and jaw moved as he spoke. There was no sign of stubble and I wondered if he would ever grow a beard. I felt awkward and so aware that I was being touched by another person and no one else there was. I wonder what, wondered what Lorna and Audrey were thinking. Ker wanted me there, he held on to me and I tried to think for a reason to sit up again. It's too warm, I'm going in the water. Not in that water, Audrey said. She held her hand up to her forehead, shielding her eyes from the sun, and I noticed how the side of her hand was covered in black ink. I checked the side of my own hand, but it was clean. I'm just going to dip my feet in. I took my shoes off and I started pulling awkwardly at my tights, careful not to flash anyone. It's brown and so full of sewage, Lorna said. We wouldn't put sewage in a loch. I'll come with you, Kerr started unlacing his school shoes. Did not want to see his pale white feet with bits of black fluff from his from his socks collected between his toes, meet you down there. The small rocks, twigs and probably glass from broken bottles although I tried not to look felt painful under the soles of my bare feet. I maintained balance and focused on not wobbling as I walked towards the water. A need for pride stemming from my exam embarrassment had made me want to look like I was completely fine and stable in both a mental and physical sense in front of my friends. Even though the sun had been hot on the parts of my skin which were not under clothes or shadowed by care, the water was very cold. I'd been foolish to expect that it would not be cold in April. This feeling the cold in your bones really just a cliched saying. It felt real at the time. I kept stepping forward through the water anyway. The bed of the lock was slimy and I imagined myself leaving sunken footprints in the mud which nobody would ever see. The water was so cloudy that as soon as another inch of me was submerged I could no longer look down and see that part of myself. I kept walking until the cold water circled my thighs. This was just below the hem of my skirt because we all pulled our skirts up to make them look shorter whenever we left home. We lengthened them again before we returned. Lorna had shown me a way to fold the waistband over so the skirt did not fall throughout the day. I would not conformed to this trend to be sexy. I just did it because everyone else was doing it and I would look strange in comparison if my skirt was all the way down to my knees. Kerr splashed through the water behind me. How are you not freezing? He asked. You get used to it. Do I need to go numb first? He put a hand down into the dark water and splashed me. He was using his other hand to hold up the ends of both of his trouser legs. What did you do that for? I'm soaked. I could hear Audrey and Lorna laughing. They were saying something too but the noise of the water was too loud as I waded back to the shore. Kira followed me. I was just messing, Freya. He put his arm around me, and I decided not to shrug it off. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Kira. A beautiful reading um, and a very interesting, a very interesting novel. I want to read more of it. I'm sure everyone else does too. Congratulations and thank you very much. Um, our next reader is Noah Racy. Noah. Is an American poet from Maryland. He studied creative writing, religion, and sociology at Pepperdine University in Malibu, California, which is where he first became interested in poetry, specifically writing in the tradition of the Fresno School. Since coming to the Oscar Wilde Center, Noah has been working on developing the lyrical quality of his work, often writing in a religiously meditative mode on subjects such as love, violence, and socio-political distress against the American landscape. Um, Noah, I believe you're going to read us some Poems, take it away.
5: I am. Thank you very much, Kevin. <clears throat> uh, you'll have
6: to excuse my voice. I'm uh, battling a bit of allergies, um, but I'm just gonna get right to it uh, so I can maybe get through two, two of these. Um, this first piece is uh, written in response to going home to the States from Ireland um, and kind of reflecting on the place I'm from. It's called On Returning to Maryland in Winter. I never noticed the billboards, one after another, along fields of corn stubble and the silos disappearing into ivy, where the bloated corpses of whitetail, pried open by turkey vultures, steamed into the winter, begging us to participate in our own own salvation, to get Narcan, save lives, or help food banks feed families, advertising a prayer hoping on and on that some passerby on the road to Elkton or Jericho would go and do likewise. Half a decade out from my childhood and everything looks worse. The houses houses sighing on their foundations, windows wrapped in plastic, meter boxes fastened with padlocks. Only the gas stations are new, pumps occupied with trucks commuting further and further every year, I've heard all the work is in Delaware now a warehouse built long after I left down a long dead end road which every December is stationed with police who spend hours searching each car for anything taken as if no one had warned them against muzzling oxen while they're treading grain and then uh, I'm going to try and sneak in another one here slightly longer um that's also about uh, Maryland. Uh, it's called The Image Speaks from the Threshold. Too young
5: to understand your parents' absence, full to your throat with something you couldn't name. I'd visit you while you lay asleep at the breeze, no heavier than a human hand,
6: dragging leaves down the alley, wafting in spells of debris, upward to paw at the white hand spun lace of the curtains to push aside what your whole life had been the meaning of the word house and so plant a new form in your mind without so clear of a border with cracks and doorways through which the sound of commuter trains traveling up the northeast corridor line might slip along with me into the opaque night of your mind there The image of the train becomes its elements, the blue and red stripe apart from the corrugated length of the body. Each window a perfect square of light, a sepia screen in the dark, unblurred and static alongside the glowing streak of their motion, together. The passengers as well, silhouetted and anonymous, traveling with the blast of the horn and the crashing of hundreds of tons of metal against earth weightless with me into you and although after this had passed when we had all come into you you both knew and felt more it wasn't a favor descending the bare wooden flights at dawn transformed beneath my hand you met your father anew understanding this building for the first time as a home of his youth holding the dust and ash of his private embarrassments or his own father had fallen on him like a beast crushed the delicate bones of his nose opening it as a faucet of blood mucus staining the perfect white of his school shirt and seeping into the boards and joists where it calls to you even now this i have given to you the ears to hear it that music with teeth and body, which holds your attention in jaws on your father's thick and scarred nose, its first form lost, buried beneath the hand of violence over time,
5: which you'd come to understand as authority after you'd taken up the work of Adam and felt many times the heavy platinum of his wedding band leaving welts and gentle swelling like a
6: crown and thought you'd be lost forever if you didn't give it a name and like a spell bring it into the dominion of knowing where it's possible to see beyond category the form of your own nose hidden there in your father's face to hear it sing to you in the gold light of the morning blood calling out to blood and filling your heart with a cruel and total forgiveness i cannot be sorry for teaching you to practice a love not meant for those of your age. Even as your father brought you to the slopes and tunnels beneath the passenger line where you'd first felt me to hunt for railroad spikes. Rusted and vulgar objects conjuring in your mind the nails driven through the palms and feet of Christ which you could not help describe a talismanic quality even as your father explained that it had been his job to drive them into the wooden ties with a 12-pound maul, bending with each strike in a perfect port de bras to land parallel and draw back before the man across from him would swing and bend, both in perfect rhythm. A ruthless choreography, so well-practiced, he said, that you could sing to it. And as he bent to pick a spike from the pebbled blacktop with a weightless move of a dancer you forgave him again even as he rose and pressed it into your hand again i was there with you then an awful clarity in your vision angry with your own anger and understanding perfectly but it was not for me to ask if i
5: touched you too soon or too harshly thank you very much Thank you very much. Uh, extraordinary reading of some
1: extraordinary work, Noah. Thank you very much, indeed. Our next reader is Cara Maxwell. Cara is a writer living in Sligo. Last year, she pul- uh, graduated from the BA in writing and literature in IT Sligo, and she's currently working on her first novel, which is called Sugartown, while obtaining her MPhil in creative writing. So, Cara.
0: Hi. Um, so, I'm going to be reading from the Third chapter of my novel. Um, It's a scene between my protagonist and her mother as they go and visit her grandmother in the nursing home. Okay. The halls of the nursing home were cool, mirage-like. Getting out of Mam's car, I'd had to unstick myself from the seat. But once indoors, goose flesh cropped up on the outsides of my arms. Granny Lynch was sitting upright in a pink plasticky leather chair, hands folded in her lap like withered lily blossoms. Staring out the window of her room and into the car park. The windows had no handles. I could feel my mother's tension, the space between us tight, strained with it. For my own part, I felt removed. The carer, a small, plump woman named Martina, who'd met us past the keypad-locked door in reception, announced our arrival. Concepta, you visitors, I'll go and fetch a pot of tea. <clears throat> She's in good form today. She's a flower, rose best in the sunshine. Isn't that right, Concepta? My grandmother looked like she might spit at her. Martina left the room and my mother and I stood there like discarded traffic cones. I flinched first, moving to sit on the hospital bed pushed against the wall, the metal frame squeaking under my weight. It had my grandmother's own comforter on it, crocheted painstakingly in oranges and browns and ochres. My mother took the chair opposite Granny first kissing her on the forehead and squeezing her shoulders awkwardly with one arm. Is that you, Amelda? No, Mammy, it's me, Moira. I know that. Granny had started rocking almost imperceptibly, and my mother was mimicking her body language, hands in her lap, slight hunch. Which one is this? My eyesight's gone very bad, they won't let me see a doctor. You know who that is, Mammy. That's Saoirse, my eldest. The lesbian. I bit my tongue to keep from laughing. How are you, Granny? I might as well be dead as in here. Martina came back with a pot of tea, steaming, and three little cups with saucers and spoons. She put the tray on the table with the teapot next to my mother, as far away from Granny as she could get it. When is Helen coming? Helen was Granny's best friend. She'd been dead for six years. Mammy, we've been over this. Helen passed away, remember? I knew that. I noticed my mother relishing this, or maybe I imagined it. The hidden note of condescension in her voice, the lift in her chin. If it was there, I didn't begrudge her it. We drank the tea and Martina turned on Home and Away on the television mounted to the wall to soften the edges of their voices. I submerged myself in ambient noise, the hum of the air conditioning, the low rumble of Australian accents the beeping of machinery somewhere down the hall, the sterile shuffling of rubber sole shoes on linoleum, and other families convening in the common area, laughing quietly, enjoying each other's company. Then my grandmother's voice like a knitting needle through an eyeball. You are the greatest shame of my life. She was looking directly at my mother, no longer so frail, sitting taller, staring at her, unblinking, even in the harsh chink of sunlight falling into her face, giving her thin white hair a shock of yellow. Her eyes were screaming blue, blue, excuse me, pupils like pinpricks, watering in the corners. My mother sat, stunned for a moment, and I thought she might actually cry. Instead, she calmly, calmly gathered up her handbag and excused herself for a breath of air. I didn't move to follow her, I knew she wouldn't appreciate it. Instead, I took her seat, and by that point, Granny had looked away again, back out the window. When is Helen coming? She's away today, Granny. She has an appointment. Oh, that's a shame. What do you do again? I'm just home from England. You're very like my Moira when she was small. Very like her. No one ever really said that to me, least of all concepta. Do you think so? Yeah, yeah, very like her, in the eyes and the chin. She broke me heart that one. Went off and got herself pregnant. Hardly out of her school uniform, so she was. Broke her mother's heart. Ah, we all make mistakes. She did it to hurt me. Then she put me in here. The doctor won't even see me. Do you want another cup of tea? You'll take me home. You were always a good girl. You pull the car around and I'll grab my bag. She made no move to get up and neither did I. I just tipped the last of the teapot into our mugs and she kept looking out into the car park where my mother was now sitting. Legs swung out of the driver's seat of her car, sunglasses on, smoking a cigarette. Where are we exactly? What do you mean? I mean, I know where we are, but where do you think we are? My impulse was to tell her the truth, but she was suffering enough. We're at a BB, b so you can get some rest, remember? Oh yeah, it's nice, is it? Lovely, sure can't you see the flower beds there? Oh yeah. She kept her eyes out the window and it was only then that I got a lump in my throat. I drained my mug and got up to say goodbye, hugged her the way my mother did, felt her bird-like bones rub together under the breath of my palm. On the drive home, Mam was silent again, kept her sunglasses on. I reached across the centre console and put my hand on her hand as it braced the steering wheel. It felt foreign, like the first time you say hello in a new language. She's gone hard bad, isn't she? Breaks me heart. Oh, she has her moments, I bet. She thinks it was me to put her in there. I had nothing to do with it. It was all Imelda, but she was always the favourite. So of course, I'm getting the blame instead, as usual. Light two smokes there. I did as I was bid, handed her one, rolled my window down further. She picked up speed on the dual carriageway and the wind dried the sweat to my skin. And what can I even do about it? It's not like I could tell her to fuck off. Half the time I wonder if she's putting it all on so she doesn't have to pretend to like me. That's terrible, isn't it? That's a terrible thing to think. I think you're entitled to feel your feelings. The wind continued to billow in the windows and I relaxed back onto the seat, cool now from the breeze, watching Loch stretch out to the left only partly wishing I'd just gone to the lake instead. <clears throat> thank you.
1: Thanks so much, Cara. Beautifully read and uh, an extraordinarily, extraordinarily moving scene.
0: Thanks um, for introducing me as well, Kevin. I forgot to say that at the start.
1: <laughs> not at all. <laughs> That's why I'm here. Um, thank you, Cara. Our last but by no means least reader is Charlotte Buckley. Charlotte is originally from Gravesend in Kent. Her poetry has appeared in The Stinging Fly, in Miss Lexia, The Emma Press, *Ambert*, and the Rialto, among others. She has been a runner up for the Poetry Book Society's Women's Poetry Competition, the Basil Bunting Poetry Award and the Jane Martin Poetry Prize. And she was highly commended in the Gregory O'Donoghue International Poetry Prize. She holds a BA in English Literature from the University of Manchester and an MPhil in Creative Writing from Trinity College Dublin where she is currently pursuing a PhD in literary practice. Her work explores ideas around cartography and women in landscape, and she is working towards her first collection.
5: Charlotte, thank you.
7: Hi, everyone. Um, Just to say thank you to Owen and Kevin and Deirdre, who is there in the background somewhere. Um, It's it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to read to you all um, alongside Kira and Noah and Clara today. And I'm going to read three poems. One is older, one is very new, and one is sort of in between. I'm going to start with a poem that I wrote a few years ago when I was living in Australia. And um, I found out that my father was quite ill and he was back at home in England and those those two points on earth are just about as far away as it's possible to be from each other. Um, so the poem is about mortality and distance, um, and it has some environmental concerns, um, and it's also about inheritance. Being uh, one of three daughters, it's um, it's preoccupied with uh, the ending of patrilineal lines and the continuing of the matrilineal. Um, I also found that the myth of Aristeus, who is the Greek god of beekeeping, works to to frame a lot of this, those concerns. Aristeus one. The hives are hung with black. No bee hum, brood cells, hive knock. They cannot be called out. In the shape of their absence he stands before the stacks. bee bereft in his suit, white as soul and just as empty. The art of the keep Life and death of it all, pageant of this small world. To tend an apiary, rear bee broods on amphoras of pollen, feed colonies sweet meals of sugar water, and at summer's end make the smoker plume, lift each frame in turn, balancing the weight of the full comb on four fingers, uncapping trough by hexagonal trough that they might flow gold he begins the work of clearing. Two, what a thrill, this luminous flight, the million tons of yellow and all of nature theirs as they go. Given heavy rain and a week of sun, bees can travel across groves, transcend fields of rapeseed or even a single flower. The instinct to fly wild and land home buzzes astral now order leads to disorder loss brings on loss and out of the chaos comes collapse air is thick hard to move in they tumble off the world chambers of wax empty the black altar still far away the trembling figure of a man behind the funeral funeral veil his tears glitter like candlelight three I left my father lifted off the roof and now there is nothing between him and the sky. What vinegar for his sting, what deities to call, what oxen to raise new swarms that sound and industry might bring him again to life. I am afraid for my father. He is 12 years old at his empty hives on the day of his own father's death. I imagine myself a bee returned, humming in rotations of dead language about him. My bee dance, his soul expanded outward into a thousand black cells and wings beating in flashes of gold, carry him in up flight that I might know the fatherland once more. Across the flown years, I feel him ascend. The second poem I'm going to read was inspired by um, an exhibition I visited last year, and it was called The Map uh, by Alice Maher and Rachel Fallon. And it's a work in response to the history of Mary Magdalene and her association with the incarceration and the institutionalisation of women. Um, It's a huge textile sculpture, and it's in the form of a a Renaissance-style mapamundi and it reimagines the Irish landscape with its own continents, its own winds um, and its own constellations. I, I think that the process of creating art and poetry is so similar and they, they share so much. And I really found the intersections of uh, cartography and gender and nation um, spark something for me in the way that they're able to break these systems of oppression. So this is Mapper Mundi. The woman lies under the world and the world looks like death or a bedsheet to cover her body. It is easy to mistake one for another. I say, what is this body if not the map? She touches my forehead with Bridget oil, draws a star on my brain called the little laundress, and it falls into a river round my neck that runs between the islands of my breasts and down to the mount of my belly. She is made of new wind, new currents, continents of cotton and thread. If a rag tied to a tree branch is a spell, then what is a tapestry hung in a gallery? What magic selves must we be in this room? We are tarns, tundras, archipelagos. I see her with many children in her future or none, with many lovers or one, many sisters that come to visit each day. Look at us folding sheets, taking down world. Uh, And this last poem is very new. In fact, I wrote it only only last week, which is uh, more of a disclaimer than anything. Um, And I'm not sure if anyone has had the chance to visit the Glucksman's map library yet, which is a bit of a, a weird plug to make. But there's this really wonderful librarian there called Paul, who I was lucky enough lucky enough to meet and sort of try and tap into his immense knowledge around maps and map making. Um, but I, I think I sort of stumped him a bit when I started asking him about feminist cartography. Uh, but he went away and came back with this um, this book, which I have quoted in the epigraph of the last poem. And the book is called A History of Women in Cartography, and it's by a man who's uh, quite impressively named Will C. Van den Hoonard. And he says. Um, the historical report, record of the major map ateliers in Europe leaves no doubt that women participated as colorists. Numerous women were border painters and the hand colouring of copper plate prints became an important activity in European cartographic establishments, with women apparently playing an important role. And so that prompted me to write this uh, poem in response. The Atlas House. They made maps not with earth beneath boot or wind in hair, but with paintbrush and burin, with light spill from lamps and not from sun. They scored the shoreline of an island, skimmed ochre onto copper plate for land, earned a penny a print, and the plates of the press met so that explorers would find their mountains. Launch their ships onto oceans, that men would know their kingdom from another's and its proper sum. But women entered the field quietly from a room above a shopfront on a narrow canal. The open window of the house lets a breeze curl the corners of a sheet. She sees how the mapmaker hammered his name across a drawing. How easily the hills have forgotten their incline on the flat of paper and puts a wash of colour over the capitals. Unqualified for having never seen the mountain or the ocean paint the only waterway that floods the etch. Blue is not the true colour of the sea. Her green is not the green of trees. A run of paper is not freedom. The earth under her boot is from the bare floorboards and the wind in her hair still passes the window before it reaches her, sat beside a pot of brushes, the plate primed for colour, the
5: map about to be made. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, uh,
1: Charlotte, for a beautiful reading and for such beautiful explanations. Of the impulses behind your work, it's, it's really fascinating to listen to. Um, and thank you once again to Kira, Noah, Kara, and Charlotte for giving us such a wonderful sense of the kind of work being done in the Oscar Wilde Centre at the moment. Um, congratulations to you all and thank you for the, the pleasure of hearing your work. Um, so uh, we do have time I think for a Q&A um, for uh, if you have any questions for any of our writers. Now is the time. There's a Q&A function just down there at the bottom of your screen. So please pop it in there. It will help me sort them out. Um, and yes,
5: yeah, just to remind all of our readers to uh, turn their cameras back on, if you would, please. Thank you. We don't have any questions yet. So I might, I might jump in with one and I'm, it's going to it's a self-serving question.
1: So um, it's indeed a self-promoting question. Am i Am going to ask it anyway? I'm going to ask you, what do you think is i'm going to ask each of you in turn and we'll go in order of 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 readers so we'll start with Kira. what is what if you could summarize it what is the the most important thing that the Oscar being in the Oscar Wilde Center has given you as a writer
5: that's such a big question (laughs) sorry um
4: the most important thing is just experience i think um like when I came here, I thought that I knew what I wanted to write, and I thought that I had a plan for what I wanted to write. But then this has kind of allowed me to just try out so many different things, and realise that there's so many other elements I hadn't even begin to think about in writing. um And just as I don't, I feel like every time I learn something new, it's like my writing kind of shifts along with it. So I think. The, the most important thing I gained from it is just being experience and like learning through that experience.
1: Thank you.
6: Noah. Uh, yeah, um, I, I'd say for me, I, I think just the benefit of being in a community of writers, um, you know, like being among peers. Uh, that have the same goals uh, as you. I mean, it's a, I I guess, classic (laughs) iron sharpening iron thing. You know, all the professors are working writers. Um, Everyone in the classes with us has aspirations to do this uh, as their life's work. Um, And so uh, getting to hang out with those people in the classroom and at the pub, I think uh, is equally beneficial uh, in kind of forming myself as a writer, I'd say.
1: Thank you uh cara
0: yeah um i'd say probably self-belief um the fact that i've i'm here and i've devoted myself to this and i've chosen it as my chosen career path has just kind of been cemented for me really by attending classes in the oscar Wilde center and knowing i was good enough at least to get this far has been really really helpful and yeah <clears throat>
1: Thank you. And lastly, Charlotte, this horrible question.
7: <laughs> I don't think I could pick one thing. It's such a tough question. I feel like it's such a privilege to have access to, you know, like such supervisors, um, such readers that are so committed to, to to your work and supporting and mentoring you. But it's also, I think it's um, the time, it's the community as well, just like Noah said, but it's the time that you have, to spend on this kind of work and also the resources. Um, So I think all of those things combined just make it a really phenomenal experience.
1: Thank you. Um, We do have have a question or two actually popping up um, in the chat. So I might ask, again, I'll pose it to all all four of you in in order of appearance. Um, Is it sometimes very hard to summon up the inspiration to put pen to page and write? I'd say, yeah, I know I, I get academic writer's block, even when writing the drier stuff. I think we all, I mean, anyone who tries to write anything, even an email is familiar with writer's block, I think, or or, or what we think of as writer's block. But do it, it, you, uh, yeah, do you find that sometimes difficult? Kira?
4: Yeah, d- definitely. Um, but I think kind of the good thing about this course is that you don't really have time to have writer's block. <laughs> so you just have to... I kind of learned a way to work through it. I just keep writing, and even if it's awful, just keep going and something will turn out.
1: I think that's true. Um, Although sometimes the awful stuff gets through too. Uh,
5: (laughs) Certainly for me. (laughs) Uh, Noah? Um, Yeah, I was just reading that uh,
6: ancient uh, Scottish poets, uh, when they had writer's block, used to strip naked and go out into the cold and set heavy stones on their chest so they couldn't get up until the right poem came to them. Um, and I haven't gone that far yet. Uh, but well, that's the, your the that's your graduation ceremony. Was when it comes Oscar Wilde. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to try that out. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the best advice I got was that uh, if I
5: write for uh, write a couple lines and then delete them, uh, it's important to consider that a. Uh, A successful day's work uh be happen till it you know draws clean so that's all I can offer.
1: No that's good. That's true. I think um I have a, a writer friend who says that even the smallest gesture in the direction of some of the work in progress on on, on a given day is enough. It should be considered enough even if you just change a word or something. I think that's true. I think that's true. Thank you. Uh Kara uh
0: yeah I struggle very badly with bouts of writer's block. Um some days it's like pulling teeth but I find even on those days, like if I put down words, whether it's 10 words, 100 words, bad words, good words, mediocre words, there's words on a page that weren't there before. So just write through it and eventually it will lift and inspiration will strike again. But (laughs) if you wait around for it, you could be waiting forever. So
5: That's it. Yeah,
1: yeah, you just have to do it. That is the painful truth. Also, I'm enjoying the way that we're recreating the credits of the Brady Bunch as we appear on the on your screen um <laughs> and finally charlotte
7: yeah i mean i think it's i think it's part of the work sometimes it doesn't sometimes it's it comes slower or it's harder but i think yeah i think it's just trying to write through it and you know trying to have different stimuli and and you know read if if you can't write um but i also feel like we're qu- we're quite people are I'm speaking as much myself here as I am about anyone else. We're quite hard on ourselves as writers. Like if we don't produce X amount, then it's, you know, we're we're failing. Um, But I think that it's okay to write slowly. And I think there's some statistic. Like for me, I think it's the it's not even the act of writing. It's it's starting the writing, which is like the hurdle to get through. And sometimes like having a deadline is a really useful way to get over that. Um, And I read somewhere that if if you just start like a project and you stop thinking about it, if you just say, I'll I'll do 10 minutes or I do half an hour, 70% of people will carry on the project. So part of it is just I think there's a phrase called like eating the frog, like just just doing it straight away.
1: Great. Thank you. Um, one more question from the chat there. Um, who are your literary inspirations
5: Kira?
4: Um, (laughs) I hate going first.
5: Uh, Sorry. (laughs) Um,
4: I really like F. Scott Fitzgerald. I'd say he's a big literary inspiration, um, just for his attention to detail and his ability to, to convey that. Um, I've been reading a lot recently, though, just from everyone's book recommendations in the course. Um, So I don't know, just kind of take a bit from everyone, a little little bit of inspiration from every person.
6: (laughs) Noah? Um, Yeah, uh, in preparation for this reading, I was um, listening to uh, Larry Levis uh, read his work, um, uh, because it's everything I'd like to emulate. Uh, um, And along with that, like, a couple other of the like, you know, great modern American poets, Phil Levine, Sharon Olds, uh, you know, anyone who I think
5: can command for all those abstract kind of universal truths out of Mm -hmm. the mundane. Uh, that's really what I admire in poets. Okay, thank you.
0: Kara? I'm going to be a giant walking cliche and say Sylvia Plath. <laughs> um, probably my biggest literary inspiration, uh, followed by maybe Margaret Atwood and Edna O'Brien, just women who write women realistically and the ups and downs of the reality of femininity Things like that, I'm very much inspired by that. So
1: <clears throat> thank you. And Charlotte.
0: I love Plath too. We shouldn't be ashamed.
1: <laughs> no, you shouldn't.
7: Absolutely, you shouldn't. <laughs> um yeah, I, I I'm thinking uh, I've been spending a lot of time reading um Irish women poets um in particular. So um poets like Ivan Boland um, and uh, Colette Bryce and Leon Shafflin. Um, and um, Jessica Trainer, and um, just to throw a man in there, I'll say Seamus Heaney, too.
1: <laughs> Poor Seamus relegated to token man. No, I a, know, Do you imagine? Unex- an unexpected fate for our Nobel <laughs> laureate. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, we have one more question. If you could each recommend one text, a poem, uh, poem or a piece prose to the audience today, what would it be, Kira?
5: Um,
4: I recommend. Uh, who will run the Frog Hospital by? Oh, choice, yeah. <laughs> Who's by? Larry More.
5: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. if if anyone who doesn't know it, it's a, it's an extraordinary novel about it. it's a kind of coming of age novel. So, um, yeah, Larry. I mean, you can't go around with Larry Moore. She's amazing um
5: noah uh yeah for a book of poems uh, i'd say uh what work seminal piece of poetic writing about labor so could you say it again noah i think you broke up a bit there yeah sorry i don't know how good my connection is um the book's called what work is by mm-hmm.
6: phil Levine.
1: oh i don't know it. Oh wonderful i'll look it up Thank you,
0: Cara. Um, I just recently finished uh, my year of rest and relaxation by Otessa Moshfay. Um I would it shot to the top of like some of my favorite books, my list um, ever that I've read. So I would recommend it to everybody.
1: Yeah, she's amazing. Um, I teach that novel in my my undergrad course. Um, that's it's so good, um, Charlotte.
7: Um, I am going to say uh, a non-poetry collection. I'm going to say uh, The Living Mountain by Nan Shepherd, um, which um, is a collection of essays, I think, is how it, you know, the genre may be. Um, but it's sort of like a, a real poet's piece of non-fiction. It's really beautiful. It's when you, My experience of reading it is almost like meditating. It's mm-hmm. my happy place.
1: Thank okay. you. I think we uh, we've a
5: couple of minutes left. Um, Is there anyone who would like to ask our writers a question? While we have them here, what do I want to ask you? Um, (laughs) I have a very impish um,
1: desire to ask you what your favourite course has been on the. the M uh, but that's a uh, don't don't answer that. Uh, <laughs> um, well, let's let's kind of ask a version of my of my first question and say, what is it about Trinity that you found beneficial? Not the M but Trinity generally. And I know that you've you've kind of you've 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 all suffered because of COVID. You haven't been able to attend in the normal way in, in many ways and something like that. But nonetheless, you're part of the Trinity community. What is
5: what is uh, what has been good for you about being in Trinity, Kira? Um, <laughs>
4: <laughs> I think, I'm not sure how to answer Trinity in general though I am really enjoying my time here. But um, specifically this course in Trinity rather than like other creative writing courses, it just, this course kind of sets you up for life as a writer mm. a lot. I've, I think um, it kind of teaches you, you know, it, it helps you develop your own writing, then teaches you lots of other styles of writing, um, which I think is really beneficial if you want to to make a career out of being a writer.
5: Noah? Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, for Trinity in general, I'd say
6: probably um, being uh, being kind of located in the heart of Dublin. Uh, both kind of culturally and physically, uh, has been really wonderful for me as someone who's not travelled very broadly, who'd never been to Ireland uh, before coming to Trinity. So that's been a remarkable opportunity. Cara?
0: Uh, Getting to uh, study in the house Oscar Wilde was born in is pretty neat. (laughs) Um, Meeting everybody on the course and just kind of having that kind of interaction with like-minded people who we all kind of share a common goal has been really beneficial as well. And I'll miss that when I'm finished. Charlotte.
7: Um, I think the the community here um, and the history of the place, um especially, uh, that being in Dublin has has actually really refocused and, and centered my research. Um, and yeah, my, I think it's just, you know, being immersed in the city and and the history um, is um, amazing.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Um, so we are, I think, going to wrap up. Um, I want to say a huge thank you to Kira, Noah, Cara and Charlotte for reading their wonderful work and for being so articulate and interesting to listen to. I really, really enjoyed this. Um, Thank you all, wishing you all the very best of luck um, with your work in the future. I will see you all soon, I have no doubt. Um, I think I'm going to hand back over to Claire briefly to say goodbye. Um, But that's it for me. Thank you all very much indeed on behalf of uh, my uh, colleagues at the Oscar Wilde Centre and myself. Take care.
2: I'm uh, sure I speak for everyone when I voice how much I enjoyed that and how lovely it was to hear excerpts from all of your work and how well you read. I was like I thought I was good at public speaking and reading but um but maybe not but there were such moving and beautiful pieces that you shared and really thought-provoking and I'm probably not alone in thinking that as a postgraduate researcher I don't make enough time to read for pleasure anymore um so the question about recommendations was actually from me because um I'm gathering them up for the Easter break um and really look forward into delving into those so thank you for providing them and Kevin, thank you very much for being our brilliant MC as well. And to everyone who's put the work into this and shared their work with us today. Um, thank you everyone for joining us. Uh, on behalf of myself and my co-conveners, Paula Donnelly and back from Michaelmas, Eric Schwartz. It's been a pleasure to be involved with this year's seminar series. This is actually um, my last one as co-convener and it's all last as well. Um, it's been a pleasure to be involved with it. And you'll be seeing more of our newest co-convener, Genevra next term. Um, so we've been training her up. <laughs> and please do keep an eye out for information about next year's series after the summer. Um, so I hope everyone has a restful Easter. Um, I wanted to thank everyone once again and thank you to those attending. Um, and that's where we'll leave it for today. So it's been a genuine pleasure.
0: The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures stamping provenance Languages towards the history to of the Taimon Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space
1: contemplating Ireland through the communities Literature. created by Coral changes. Australia. The Hub is about
0: impact. 90% the is and <inaudible> <the internet>. <inaudible> The hub is for everyone. And the rise of feminist resistance through the Here's to the next 10 years.